Well, as, as we get started, just one, one announcement. Uh, um, Saturday at 2 p.m., there's going to be a baby shower for Lars and Janelle, and it's a combined shower here at 2 p.m. Uh, so uh, just please come and honor them. They are registered at uh, Amazon, Target, and Burlington, and we have been very prayerful about their, their baby girl, which we are, are very excited to, to welcome uh, into the world in just a few short weeks. But please come and join us as we, we celebrate them um, this Saturday at 2 p.m. Again, it's combined for both, both men and women, so hopefully you can uh, join us at that. And we're continuing our series called Pure Joy, where we're looking at the book of Philippians, and we keep talking about, it's just unbelievable that Paul writes with such joy, and in this book that has four chapters, 16 different times, he writes about this concept of joy, which is pretty unbelievable because he's in a really difficult circumstance. He probably actually assumes that he's going to die. He doesn't really fully know, but he's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to this church, and typically he didn't make it out of prison, so he's assuming that this could be the end of his life, and yet he has this joyful perspective. And as I've said, it's hard for me because like my joy can be robbed by the simplest of things. I get a paper cut or a canker sore, or this week I have a bad cold and I just wasn't that great of a person at times. Because I have a cold, I'm still kind of getting, getting over that. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to, to talk all the way through today. I have a little bit more of a sultry voice than usual. But it's these things that, that can happen that can take away our joy. And I look at Paul and say, how on earth did you do that? We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning. Uh, I got this, Sonia emailed this to me, um, this picture, um, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants sitting next to Paul, and he says, hey, Paul, what are you doing, writing a letter? And he writes, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me uh, three times. So if any of you are familiar with with SpongeBob, you might uh, get that a little bit. Um, Paul is actually not suffering from SpongeBob as he, he writes this, but he says to this church, like, I'm struggling with this because I deeply believe in you. And so the first chapter, he talks a lot about his chains, and yet that he's going to be persistent in joy. But that doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be a response. He begins chapter two by saying this, therefore, and just, we're going to hang, leave that on the screen for a while, Simon, because I want this, this is kind of just the central part of the message that's today. So he says, you know, I'm in chains and it's difficult for me and I'm working out, I'm rooting for your salvation, I'm praying for you, I'm wanting you to, to get encouragement from me. And then he says, all right, all right, all right, but I'm in prison and therefore, if you have any encouragement from me, basically, I want you to continue in this. Like, this is why I'm doing this. I'm not just doing this, like, to just be a martyr or to be a hero. I want you to learn from this, and I want you to then live this out. Live from my example. Therefore, it's always frustrating. One of the most frustrating things as a, as a parent is if you are sacrificing for your kid, like if you take a long trip, you spend a lot of money, and you assume that they're just going to love seeing like Thomas the Tank live or whatever, and then you take them there, and then they don't like it. And you're like, oh, no. One of my friends said one of the worst things about being a dad is typically the things you're most excited about being a dad don't happen until they're like seven or eight years old. Like you're not going to three months in, be able to play catch with your kid. You know, it's going to be a while, and it's going to be a while till um, your son or your daughter is going to enjoy watching an entire baseball game with you. It's going to be a little bit of a process. And so there's things that happen sometimes, and it's like, I, I, come on, I spent some money on this, or I struggled with this, or I really wanted you to do this, and then I didn't see the result. And so Paul, I think, sometimes would say, okay, I'm not just like struggling to just, you know, to show you how holy I am or that I'm better than you. I'm struggling 
that you might live this out. Therefore, this is what I'm calling you forward to. And honestly, church, like these two verses, I don't think we do all that well if we're being real. If you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. And that's that phrase joy again. And Paul is actually saying that my joy is a little bit dependent on this. Like the thing that I deeply care about, what I'm giving my life to, I might die here. And what is dependent is that you would be like-minded, that the way that I'm suffering for you, that you would suffer for each other, that you would have the same love. Being in one spirit and of one mind. That there's a certain depth to unity that hopefully would happen. Like I'm in a deep, difficult circumstance here and you need to have some sort of of oneness about you because of this, in response to this. And I think we struggle. And you drive around town. There are I looked it up, I googled it just because I was interested. There are 27 different Baptist denominations. First, second, third Baptist, primitive Baptist. And I mean, there's this, this long list. And I, I'm not taking shots at them because we have our own issues too. It wasn't until I went to college that I realized that Presbyterians believed in Jesus. It was like, whoa, no way. We have a lot of the same beliefs. This is still a struggle for us, a story that I really debated whether or not to tell, but there was something recently that, that we went to, and one of our members mentioned that, I'm not going to try to be as generic as possible, that he or she was attending at Glendale, and a minister from another church at this event said, oh, you go to Glendale, here they use instruments now, and it ended up having this debate about this issue, and basically convince this woman to stop coming to our church. <laughs> Dang, I, said, I didn't mean to say that. To stop coming to our church. I really didn't mean to say that. And I'm not going to say names. I'm just I'm editing out as much as possible because I, I, I really don't want this to be gossipy or anything like that. And I understand uh, for Church of Christ people, this is, this is a controversial issue. I, I understand that. And as I've said over and over again, if you are, are struggling with this transition, like, please talk to me. And I deeply appreciate you continuing fellowship here because of that. Because that's not Christian unity. And this event we were at was called the Unity Worship. I mean, come on. And this person did not talk to me about this. They didn't talk to my elders about this. They didn't, they just went to one and just like, hey, well, they're using it. You should stop going there. That's not Christian unity. Christian unity is not uniformity. Christian unity is coming together even with people that have differing opinions and differing ideas of what it looks like to worship, to live in all of these things and saying, you know what, I'm going to love you anyway. Jesus says um, that if you love people like, that are only like you, congratulations, but even people that don't worship God do that. What credit is that to you? Even those that don't even care about God or church, any of that stuff, Everybody does that. And again, those of you who, who are, are struggling with this, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate 
you coming and continuing to participate because that is a Christian witness. You would be shocked by some of the things that some of the people believe in this room. Turn to somebody and say, you believe what? Just do that. Just say that. You believe what? Randy Harris, who's a a wonderful, wonderful minister in Churches of Christ, says the only thing that's holding some of our churches together is a lack of communication. (laughs) And I think it's pretty true. Because you would be shocked. Things that you would say, oh, that's central to the faith. There's no way. And you'd be like, you believe what? But that's what Christian unity is. It's like it goes deeper than some preferences and stuff. It actually even goes deeper than stuff that you might say, like, that's really worth fighting over. But there's a way that you would even fight, that you would engage in, in conversation and conflict that's different because you are a Christian. Again, Christian unity is not uniformity. And look at those words. Again, we could just try to live this one out forever. Just be in one spirit and one mind. That transcends a lot of stuff, doesn't it? One spirit and one mind. And people leave churches from time to time, and I understand, you know, sometimes they're legitimately good decisions, and it's, you know, they, they need to make that decision that that's okay. Um, but one thing that I would like you to do, if you're ever considering leaving this church or, or another one, is run it through what I would call the, the persecuted Christian test. That when you get to heaven, if you see Peter and you're like having a conversation and swapping some stories about your Christian faith, and Peter's like, yeah, yeah, I, I left a church one time too. It was, it was a really messy situation, you know, Rome came in, like guys were meeting, and killed a couple people, and so we had to like move. A couple people had to go to prison, and so yeah, we had to like change the location we were meeting. We had to get a little bit outside of town. What was the reason you left your church? Imagine that test, right? What was the reason you left? Because a woman passed a communion tray? And come on. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in mind, and I get this, this is tough. But Paul is saying, I'm sacrificing for you Therefore, if you have some encouragement from this, make my joy complete and and live out my example. You know, keep it up. Do this as well. Lay down some of of your own preferences and the things that you might desire, the things that you would want. And this is incredibly difficult, I think, especially in, in our world today. We continue, I think, to be more and more individualistic. When it comes to everything, of course, that seeps into how how we view church as well. A relatively new concept, I'm a huge sports fan, go Dodgers from last night, but um, one thing that you see in, in current sports, it's very recent, over the last 10 to 15 years, is the idea of people demanding a trade. Like they're coming out and saying, no, like I'm demanding, I, I will not play for this coach or this team, whatever it is, and I'm demanding a trade. That's a relatively new thing. It's becoming pretty common that people will say, they actually call NBA, now they call it like pre-agency instead of free agency, that people are just like kind of demanding uh, what's happening. And there's one very recently that you might have heard, Jimmy Butler, who's on the Minnesota Timberwolves. Um, he came out, and not only did he demand a trade, but he said, I want to be traded by Tuesday to the L.A. Clippers. 
Now, management did not trade Jimmy Butler. They decided, as they said, no, you're going to play for us. And it created a super awkward situation, a really awkward practice session that was very interesting reading. But um, it's kind of crazy that we've gone from like, okay, you just kind of play for your team and you don't really have that much to say about it to like, now I'm demanding a trade to all the way of saying like, not only will you trade me, but trade me by this date to this team. And we don't just see that in sports. We see that everywhere. We just have this individualistic mentality, this individualistic way of reading things. One thing that you you see commonly uh, in the New Testament um, is we see you that's written there, and we all think of that as like this very personal, you know, have this personal relationship with God, but almost always in the New Testament, it's you all, basically. Being from the South will help you a little bit. Therefore, if y'all have some encouragement, you are a a Christian community. If y'all are doing this, it's about this, this togetherness. It's deeper than just this individual mentality. I think this runs pretty deep uh, for, for Americans because generally if you were to introduce yourself, I would say, like, you know, I'm, I'm Brian. I'm, I'm the minister of a church. That typically is how I would, would engage in any sort of conversation with, with someone for the first time. You know, I'll tell them a little bit about myself and what I do. In more communal environments, the first way you introduce yourself is you would say, like, I'm the third son of Mary and Tom. My grandparents are so-and-so. There was a recent uh, podcast that I was listening to, and this guy was having a conversation with someone, and he said um, the, the, one of the deepest issues with, with America today is you have no idea who my grandparents are. In a lot of ways, it doesn't matter, and it, you don't really care. Many of you don't even know, you know, my parents' names. This is what this, this person was, was saying. We don't have an understanding of more communal nature, like within the family structure even, but largely we don't have this, this idea that we are striving for oneness, even sometimes in, in disagreements, in difficult times. There's a man named Robert Winslow who did some, some research on small group studies, and he said that half of the groups that he studied were organized around the Bible, that people would, you know, pick up the Bible and, and study together, which is a wonderful um, thing. But what would end up happening over time is that people would, would leave the Bible study when they started to interpret things differently. And I think we, we've seen that at, at times uh, in our church as well. What I think Paul would say is our unity in Christ frees us to disagree. That our unity in Christ is for us to actually learn to, to struggle and, and be in relationship with people. I know for me, the people that I learn the most from are people who aren't like me, who don't share the same likes and dislikes, who sometimes have come from difficult circumstances and different backgrounds. We can learn and grow together. And Paul says, if you have any encouragement from what I'm doing, I'm pouring out my life for you here. I don't know whether I'm going to live or I'm going to die. Therefore, have this kind of love. Being one in spirit and mind. One that isn't just going to go from this thing to that thing because we have a different sort of heartbeat in us. Ephesians 2, Paul says this this way to the church in Ephesus, For he himself is our peace, 
who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. What Paul is arguing here is even if there are things, things that that build up, walls get built up over time between people. That's just what happens between people. He said Christ is making us a new humanity, thus making peace. Jesus, church, is bigger. Jesus and the love that Christ has for all of us is bigger. And I know that there's an impulse, I think, in all of us to think that, you know, once this happens or what this goes on, then like we're going to get to this place and we're going to arrive or it's going to take it to be in a new part, new congregation or something, then things are going to be better. What we are doing is kind of just living out an impulse that has been around really forever, but especially in the United States from the very beginning. We were started largely uh, with the idea of being a place where people could worship freely. That was one of the, the goals, that the United States would not be a place where you, know, you had to be Catholic or you had to be Protestant, that it was going to be this, this different thing. The thought was, wow, we could really, like, we could get religion perfect here. We could nail this thing. So the Puritans, they started out, uh, especially with a guy named Roger Williams, and a, a historian named Edwin Gustad said this, far from England's intruding and persecuting bishops, Protected from the nation's nosy and arresting sheriff, the Puritans, taking only the New Testament as their pattern and guide, could fashion a pure, non-political, uncorrupted, non-compromised church. And the word Puritan just means pure. We're trying to purify this whole thing. And the Puritans tried it, and it kept causing churches to split over things. Roger Williams, he wanted to purge the Anglican church of some of its issues, and so he wanted to set this up on the New Testament alone. He ended up becoming, um, like starting several different churches, and he realized towards the end that he was part of the problem. And there's a book called They Love Jesus But Not the Church, and I agree with some of that. I think that stuff is, is important, but that's always going to be the case. That sometimes things aren't going to go as exactly as, as you would or the thing that you think Jesus would be passionate about. And the Puritans tried this early on in the nation's history. And then the movement that started the Churches of Christ in the early 1800s, coming out of the Great Awakening, the Restoration Movement, what it's called, we try to do the same thing. The thought was that if we just could use the Bible and the Bible as our only guide, then, you know, we're all just going to be fine. And I think that's not a naive thing because this is one of the first times in human history that everybody has the Bible in their hands and they can, you know, have conversations and it's actually written in their language. And so it was a really great idea. But unfortunately, it just always fails. And sometimes we need to have one spirit and one mind, even in difficult times and times when we don't agree. And Paul says, this is why I'm struggling for you people. Not so you can just all be happy and be joyous, though that may be part of it, but that you would be of one mind and one spirit. This is what I'm doing this for. And think about this. I I know that 
churches maybe have, have hurt you, some difficult things have happened, but in all areas of life, this is true. Find the perfect job. And if you found it, let me know. Find the perfect neighborhood. These places where community is developed, it's always filled with people. And if that's the case, it's going to be hard. A ministry friend of mine, Mike Cope, says, all perfect churches have one thing in common. They don't exist. I think that's true. When Paul writes about love, he writes about it so beautifully. And it's a passage that we've quoted in weddings forever. You know, love is patient. Love is kind. It's just, it's beautiful. And we talk about it during weddings, and we say, you know, hopefully you can live this out together. But what he's addressing there is like a major church conflict. And he's trying to get them once again to be centered on the perfect love of Christ. Because that's the only thing that can truly push us forward. He says love covers over a multitude of sins. Do you feel like you need to cover over someone's multitude of sins? All right, that's called love. Do you feel like, well, do I have to have fellowship with an erring brother then? Like, you have no other kind. This is what love calls us to do. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. Return. Paul is calling the Corinthian church, return to this. And in our world, as I said, which is increasingly individualistic, where players don't just demand trades, but say the date and the location, we need this. There's a sociologist who studied an Indian tribe uh, in Arizona, a Hopi uh, Indian tribe, and he was doing lots of work with them, and he was asking them um, some questions about things. And one thing he stumbled upon is, why do you have so many songs about rain? You just sing about rain all the time. And the Hopi Indian leader said, well, I don't know, you know, Maybe it's because we live in Arizona and there's not a whole lot of rain here. And so we sing a lot about rain. They sat there in silence for a minute. And this Indian tribe leader said, do you think that's why people in the Western world sing so much about love? Like all over the radio? Every other song, or every song almost? about love. That's one of those moments like I talked about. Sometimes diverse people can help you learn things about yourself. You think that could be true? That what we long for, a deeper sense of community and love, that it sometimes is going to be hard for us. It's going to take some vulnerability is what we really desperately want and need. 
to find the, the pure joy that I think Paul writes about is to understand that sometimes it's difficult to be in community together. Sometimes it's hard to have that unity together. But may we strive for the oneness of spirit and mind that Paul invites us to consider. There was a Church of Christ preacher who may be one of my favorites. You, one of you might have heard him, uh, Marshall Keeble. If anybody, Thelma's not on her head. Did you ever hear him preach, Brother Marshall? No. Um, so, yeah, I heard about him. He's a legendary um, preacher. Um, he, he passed away in 1968, but he started his preaching in 1897. And he preached, um, was just a fantastic preacher, preached primarily in African-American churches, but this is going to sound, this is going to sound horrible is what they said, not what I said, but um, some white preacher said about him that he's so good that even white people should go listen to him. I mean, it's a horrible thing, horrible thing to say, but at the time, in the early 1900s, that was like the, about the best compliment that he was just such a fantastic preacher. He baptized thousands of people, um, and really, you can go to YouTube, just Google Marshall Keeble and listen. There's some of his sermons you can find um, online. And he was a trailblazer in, in many, many things. One of the things was race relations, something that he cared uh, deeply about. And so he would uh, preach um, all over the country in all these different places. And he got into some trouble, both from like the white churches and the black churches, um, because he was a little bit too liberal at times for people. He was a little far out there with his ideas. One of the things that he got in trouble for was that he would call everybody a brother or a sister. Everybody he would call a brother or sister. Like white people, black people, Hispanic people. He would call everybody brother or sister. And this would extend even beyond, like this is getting awkward, but beyond the Church of Christ, like back in the early 1900s, which was just crazy, like, you know, Baptist people, Presbyterian people, brother or sister. And not only did he go that far, but he would call people who weren't believers brother sister. And he was asked about that one time because people would debate with him about his views. And he said, if he or she is not my brother or sister in Christ, then he or she is my brother or sister in Adam. And I choose to reach out to fellowship. This is what I would choose to be. And it sounds almost shocking, especially in the early 1900s. That, that's crazy that he would go around saying brother or sister to like anybody. But it's actually somewhat biblical. Because in Acts chapter 9, Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, it says that he's on his way breathing murderous threats to the church. And he's in Damascus, and he gets blinded by the light of Jesus. And God needs somebody then to like help and you know, minister to Paul and help during this time. And he goes to a man named Ananias on Straight Street, and the Holy Spirit says to him, go and minister to Saul. And to Ananias, this is a horrible idea. Like, no way. Just think of the person who you'd be most terrified to go. It's like a, the Unabomber or something. It's like, no, there's a a terrorist coming to town who's like breathing murderous threats about like my friends. I, I need to go talk to that guy? 
Like, God, that must be some indigestion. That's not you talking to me. Like, I'm not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle to believe that that would be you. And so he's like, I don't know. Should I do that? Should I not? And he ultimately is convicted. No, God says, no, no, no. You really need to go do this. And so Saul, still in his very murderous ways, has, goes to Ananias and they have this conversation. And it opens like this in Acts chapter 9 when Ananias says, Brother Saul. And at this moment, he's anything but Ananias' brother, right? Again, he might have killed some of his friends, might have put some of those people in prison. But as he is beginning his ministry, this isn't like at the end. This isn't once everything has come, that everything's better, and you know that Paul has repented and he becomes Paul. No, from the very beginning, this, I believe, is what Christian faith looks like. Reaching to those who seem different than us and saying, you know, brother or sister, you are invited on this journey with me. Come join me here. Paul writes to this church and he says, I'm in chains, I'm struggling here, it's difficult for me, but therefore this is what I'm calling you to. Oneness of, of spirit and mind, a different way of viewing the world. Jesus said, if you just love people that are like you, then what credit is that to you? Everybody already does that. But you are called to love differently. To say brother and sister. And to show a different kind of love to the world. We're going to sing one more time the song that uh, we are, are familiar with, that, that Philip uh, was able to find this week, that we would, the world would know that we are Christians by the love that we have. If you would like to connect your life more to this love, if you're considering uh, getting baptized, I would love to talk with you about that because I believe this love still changes the world. But for all of us, I hope that as we think about what God is calling us to, as we think about the distinctions, the barriers that we all have, have built up in our lives, that God is once again calling us to peace, reconciliation, and love. And Paul writes to this church, this is why I'm doing this. I'm suffering in here. I might die. I don't know what's going to happen. But I am doing this so that you might live with this kind of love. Don't just take this example for yourself. Show the world this example. and Live in one spirit and one mind. Let's stand and worship.